Chapter forty three of Tess of the D'Urbervilles. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Tess of the D'Urbervilles by Thomas Hardy. Read by Adrian Pretzelis. Chapter forty three. There was no exaggeration in Marian's definition of Flintcomb Ash Farm as a Starvaker place. The single fat thing on the soil was Marian herself, and she was an importation. Of the three classes of village—the village cared for by its lord, the village cared for by itself, and the village uncared for either by itself or by its lord—in other words, the village of a resident squire's tenantry, the village of free or copyholders, and the absentee owner's village farmed with land—this place Flintcomb Ash was the third. But Tess set to work. Patience, that blending of moral courage and physical timidity, was now no longer a minor feature in Mrs. Angel Clare, and it sustained her. The swede field in which she and her companion were set hacking was a stretch of a hundred odd acres in one patch, on the highest ground of the farm, rising above stony lanchets or lynchets the outcrop of silicous veins in the chalk formation, composed of myriads of loose white flints in bulbous, cusped, and phallic shapes. The upper half of each turnip had been eaten off by the livestock, and it was the business of the two women to grub up the lower or earthy half of the root with a hooked fork called a hacker, that it might be eaten also. Every leaf of the vegetable having already been consumed, the whole field was in colour a desolate drab. It was a complexion without features, as if a face, from chin to brow, should be only an expanse of skin. The sky wore, in another colour, the same likeness—a white vacuity of countenance with the lineaments gone. So these two upper and nether visages confronted each other all day long, the white face looking down on the brown face and the brown face looking up at the white face, without anything standing between them but the two girls crawling over the surface of the former like flies. Nobody came near them, and their movements showed a mechanical regularity, their forms standing enshrouded in hessian roppers, sleeved brown pinafores tied behind to the bottom to keep their gowns from blowing about, scant skirts revealing boots that reached high up the ankles and yellow sheepskin gloves with gauntlets. The pensive character which the curtained hood lent to their bent heads would have reminded the observer of some early Italian conception of the two Marys. They worked on hour after hour, unconscious of the forlorn aspect they bore on the landscape, not thinking of the justice or injustice of their lot. Even in such a position as theirs it was possible to exist in a dream. In the afternoon the rain came on again, and Marian said that they need not work any more. But if they did not work they would not get paid, so they worked on. It was so high a situation, this field, that the rain had on no occasion to fall, but raced along horizontally upon the yelling wind, sticking into them like glass splinters till they were wet through. Tess had not known till now what was really meant by that. There are degrees of dampness, 
and a very little is called being wet through in common talk. But to stand working slowly in a field and feel the creep of rainwater, first on legs and shoulders, then on hips and head, then at back, front and sides, and yet to work on till the leaden light diminishes and marks that the sun is down, demands a distinct modicum of stoicism, even of valour. Yet they did not feel the wetness so much as might be supposed. They were both young, and they were talking of the time when they lived and loved together at Talbothoy's dairy, that happy green tract of land where summer had been liberal in her gifts, in substance to all, emotionally to these. Tess would fain not have conversed with Marian of the man who was legally, if not actually, her husband, but the irresistible fascination of the subject betrayed her into reciprocating Marian's remarks. And thus, as it has been said, though the damp curtains of their bonnets flapped smartly into their faces, and their wrappers clung about them to wearisomeness, they lived all this afternoon in memories of green, sunny, romantic Talbothays. "'You can see a gleam of a hill within a few miles of Froom Valley from here when tis fine,' said Marian. "'Ah, can you?' said Tess, awake to the new value of this locality. So the two forces were at work here, as everywhere. The inherent will to enjoy, and the circumstantial will against enjoyment. Marian's will had a method of assisting itself by taking from her pocket, as the afternoon wore on, a pint bottle corked with a white rag, from which she invited Tess to drink. Tess's unassisted power of dreaming, however, being enough for her sublimation at present, she declined, except the merest sip, and then Marian took a pull herself from the spirits. "'I've got used to it,' she said, "'and can't leave it off now. "'Tis my only comfort. "'You see, I lost him. "'You didn't, and you can do without it, perhaps.' Tess thought her loss as great as Marian's, but upheld by the dignity of being Angel's wife, in the letter at least, she accepted Marian's differentiation. Amid this scene Tess slaved in the morning frosts and in the afternoon rains. When it was not swede-grubbing, it was swede-trimming, in which process they sliced off the earth and the fibres with a bill-hook, before storing the roots for future use. At this occupation they could shelter themselves by a thatched hurdle if it rained. But if it was frosty, even their thick leather gloves could not prevent the frozen masses they handled from biting their fingers. Still Tess hoped. She had a conviction that sooner or later the magnanimity which she persisted in reckoning as a chief ingredient of Clare's character would lead him to rejoin her. Marian, primed to a humorous mood, would discover the queer-shaped flints aforesaid, and shriek with laughter, Tess remaining severely obtuse. They often looked across the country to where the Var or Froom was known to stretch, even though they might not be able to see it and fixing their eyes on the cloaking grey mist, imagined the old times that they had spent out there. "'Ah,' said Marian, "'how I should like another or two of our old set to come here. 
when we could bring up Talbothays every day here afield, and talk of he, of what nice times we had there, and all the things we used to know, and make it all come back again a-most, in seeming." Marian's eyes softened, and her voice grew vague as the visions returned. "'I'll write to Is Hewitt,' she said. She's biding at home, doing nothing now, I know. And I'll tell her we be here, and ask her to come, and perhaps Retty is well enough now." Tess had nothing to say against this proposal, and the next she heard of the plan for importing old Taubathay's joys was two or three days later, when Marian informed her that Iz had replied to her inquiry, and had promised to come if she could. There had not been such a winter for years. It came on in steadily and measured glides, like the moves of a chess-player. One morning the few lonely trees and the thorns of the hedgerows appeared as if they had put off a vegetable for an animal integument. Every twig was covered with a white nap, as of fur grown from the rind during the night, giving it four or five times its usual stoutness the whole bush or tree forming a staring sketch in white lines on the morningful grey of the sky and horizon. Cobwebs revealed their presence on sheds and walls where none had been observed till brought out into visibility by the crystallizing atmosphere, hanging like loops of white worsted from salient points of the outhouses, posts, and gates. After this season of congealed dampness came a spell of dry frost when strange birds from behind the North Pole began to arrive silently on the upland of Flintcomb Ash. Gaunt spectral creatures with tragical eyes, eyes which had witnessed scenes of cataclysmal horror in inaccessible polar regions of a magnitude such as no human being has ever conceived, in curdling temperatures that no man could endure, which had beheld the crash of icebergs and the slide of snow-hills by the shooting light of the aurora, being half-blinded by the whirl of colossal storms and terraqueous distortions, and retained the expression of feature such scenes had engendered. These nameless birds came quite near to Tess and Marian, but of all they had seen which humanity would never see, they brought no account. The traveller's ambition to tell was not theirs and with dumb impassivity they dismissed experiences which they did not value for the immediate incidents of this homely upland, the trivial movements of the two girls in disturbing the clods with their hackers so as to uncover something or other that these visitants relished as food. Then one day a peculiar quality invaded the air of this open country. There came a moisture which was not of rain, and a cold which was not of frost. It chilled the eyeballs of the twain, made their brows ache, penetrated to their skeletons, affecting the surface of the body less than its core. They knew that it meant snow, and in the night the snow came. Tess, who continued to live at the cottage with the warm gable that cheered any lonely pedestrian who paused beside it, awoke in the night and heard above the thatch noises which seemed to signify that the roof had turned itself into a gymnasium of all the winds. When she lit her lamp to get up in the morning, she found that the snow had been blown through a chink in the casement, 
forming a white cone of the finest powder against the inside, and had also come down the chimney, so that it lay sole-deep upon the floor, on which her shoes left tracks when she moved about. Without, the storm drove so fast as to create a snow-mist in the kitchen, but as yet it was too dark out of doors to see anything. Tess knew that it was impossible to go on with the Swedes, and by the time she had finished breakfast beside the solitary little lamp, Marian arrived to tell her that they were to join the rest of the women at reed-drawing in the barn till the weather changed. As soon, therefore, as the uniform cloak of darkness without began to turn into a disordered medley of greys, they blew out the lamp, wrapped themselves up in their thickest pinners, tied their woollen cravats round their necks and across their chests, and started for the barn. The snow had followed the birds from the polar basin as a white pillar of a cloud, and individual flakes could not be seen. The blast smelt of icebergs, arctic seas, whales, and white bears, carrying the snow so that it licked the land, but did not deepen on it. They trudged onwards with slanted bodies through the flossy fields, keeping as well as they could in the shelter of hedges, which, however, acted as strainers rather than screens. The air, afflicted to pallor with the hoary multitudes that infested it, twisted and spun them eccentrically, suggesting an achromatic chaos of things. But both the young women were fairly cheerful. Such weather on a dry upland is not in itself dispiriting. "'Ah, the cunning northern birds knew this was a-comin,' said Marian. "'Depend on't. They keep just in front on't all the way from the North Star. Your husband, my dear, is, I make no doubt, having scorching weather all this time. Lord, if he could only see his pretty wife now! Not that this weather hurts your beauty at all. In fact, it rather does it good. You mustn't talk about him to me, Marian said Tess severely. "'Well, but surely you care for her, do you?' Instead of answering, Tess, with tears in her eyes, impulsively faced in the direction in which she had imagined South America to lie, and putting up her lips, blew out a passionate kiss upon the snowy wind. "'Well, well, I know you do. But, pon my body, it is a rum life for a married couple. There, I won't say another word.' Well, as for the weather, it won't hurt us in the wheat barn, but reed-drawing is fearful hard work, worse than sweet-hacking. I can stand it because I'm stout, but you be slimmer than I. I can't think why Maester should have set ye at it." They reached the wheat barn and entered it. One end of the low structure was full of corn. The middle was where the reed-drawing was carried on and there had already been placed in the reed-press the evening before as many sheaves of wheat as would be sufficient for the women to draw from during the day. "'Why, here's is,' said Marian. "'Is it was, and she came forward. She had walked all the way from her mother's home on the previous afternoon, and, not deeming the distance so great, had been belated, arriving, however, just before the snow began, and sleeping at the alehouse.' The farmer had agreed with her mother at market to take her on if she came to-day, and she had been afraid to disappoint him by delay. In addition to Tess, Marian, and Iz, 
There were two women from a neighbouring village, two Amazonian sisters, whom Tess with a start remembered as Dark Car, the Queen of Spades, and her junior, the Queen of Diamonds, those who had tried to fight with her in the midnight quarrel at Trantridge. They showed no recognition of her, and possibly had none, for they had been under the influence of liquor on that occasion, and were only temporary sojourners there as here. They did all kinds of men's work by preference, including well-sinking, hedging, ditching and excavating, without any sense of fatigue. Noted reed-drawers they were too, and looked round upon the other three with some superciliousness. Putting on their gloves, all set to work in a row in front of the press, an erection formed of two posts connected by a cross-beam, under which the sheaves to be drawn from were laid ears outward, the beam being pegged down by pins in the uprights, and lowered as the sheaves diminished. The day hardened in colour, the night coming in at the barn-doors upwards from the snow, instead of downwards from the sky. The girls pulled handful after handful from the press, but by reasons of the presence of the strange women, who were recounting scandals, Marian and Iz could not at first talk of old times as they wished to do. Presently they heard the muffled tread of a horse, and the farmer rode up to the barn door. When he had dismounted he came close to Tess, and remained looking musingly at the side of her face. She had not turned at first, but his fixed attitude led her to look around, when she perceived that her employer was the native of Trantridge from whom she had taken flight on the high road because of his allusion to her history. He waited till she had carried the drawn bundles to the piles outside, when he said, "'So you be the young woman who took my civility in such ill part. Be drowned if I didn't think you might be as soon as I heard of your being hired. Well, you thought you had got the better of me the first time at the inn with your fancy man, and the second time on the road when you bolted. But now I think I've got the better of you.' he concluded with a hard laugh. Tess, between the Amazons and the farmer, like a bird caught in a clap-net, returned no answer, continuing to pull the straw. She could read the character sufficiently well to know by this time that she had nothing to fear from her employer's gallantry. It was rather the tyranny induced by his mortification at Clare's treatment of him. Upon the whole she preferred that sentiment in man and was brave enough to endure it. "'You thought I was in love with thee, I suppose. Some women are such fools to take every look as serious earnest. But there's nothing like a winter afield for taking that nonsense out of the young wenches' heads, and you've signed on and agreed till Lady Day. Now, are you going to beg my pardon?' "'I think you ought to beg mine.' "'Very well, as you like it.' and we'll see which is master here. Be they all the sheaves you've done to-day?" "'Yes, sir.' "'Tis a very poor show. Just see what they've done over there,' pointing to the two stalwart women. "'The rest, too, have done better than you.' "'They've all practised it before, and I have not. And I thought it made no difference to you, as it is task-work, and we are only paid for what we do.' "'Oh, but it does.' I want the barn cleared. 
I am going to work all afternoon instead of leaving at two as the others will do." He looked sullenly at her and went away. Tess felt that she could not have come to a much worse place, but anything was better than gallantry. When two o'clock arrived the professional reed-drawers tossed off their last half-pint in their flagon, put down their hooks, tied their last sheaves, and went away. Marian and Iz would have done likewise, but on hearing that Tess meant to stay, to make up by longer hours for her lack of skill, they would not leave her. Looking out at the snow which still fell, Marian exclaimed, "'Now we've got it all to ourselves!' And so at last the conversation turned to their old experiences at the dairy, and of course the incidents of their affection for Angel Clare. "'Is and Marian,' said Mrs. Angel Clare, with a dignity which was extremely touching, seeing how very little of a wife she was. I can't join in talk with you now as I used to do about Mr. Clare. You will see that I cannot, because though he has gone away from me for the present, he is my husband." Is was by nature the sauciest and most caustic of all the four girls who had loved Clare. "'He was a splendid lover, no doubt,' she said. "'But I don't think he's too fond a husband to go away from you so soon.' He had to go. He was obliged to go to see about the land over there," pleaded Tess. "'He might have tidied it over the winter—ah, that's owing to an accident, a misunderstanding, and we won't argue it,' Tess answered, with tearfulness in her words. "'Perhaps there's a good deal to be said for him. He did not go away like some husbands without telling me, and I can always find out where he is.' After this they continued for some long time in a reverie, as they went on seizing the ears of corn, drawing out the straw, gathering it under their arms, and cutting off the ears with their bill-hooks, nothing sounding in the barn but the swish of the straw and the crunch of the hook. Then Tess suddenly flagged, and sank down upon the heap of wheat-ears at her feet. "'I knew you wouldn't be able to stand it,' cried Marian. It wants harder flesh than yours for this work." Just then the farmer entered. "'Oh, that's how you get on while I'm away,' he said to her. "'But it is my own loss,' she pleaded, "'not yours.' "'I want it finished,' he said doggedly, as he crossed the barn and went out at the other door. "'Don't ee mind him, there's a dear,' said Marian. "'I've worked here before.' Now you go and lie down there, and Iz and I will make up your number." "'I don't like to let you do that. I'm taller than you, too.' However, she was so overcome that she consented to lie down a while, and reclined on a heap of pull-tails, the refuse after the straight straw had been drawn, thrown up at the further side of the barn. Her succumbing had been as largely owing to agitation at reopening the subject of her separation from her husband as to the hard work. She lay in a state of percipience without volition, and the rustle of the straw and the cutting of the ears by the others had the weight of bodily touches. She could hear from her corner, in addition to these noises, the murmur of their voices. She felt certain that they were continuing the subject already broached but their voices were so low that she could not catch the words. 
At last Tess grew more and more anxious to know what they were saying, and persuading herself that she felt better, she got up and resumed work. Then Is Hewitt broke down. She had walked more than a dozen miles the previous evening, had gone to bed at midnight, and had risen again at five o'clock. Marian alone, thanks to her bottle of liquor and her stoutness of build, stood the strain upon back and arms without suffering. Tess urged Is to leave off, agreeing as she felt better to finish the day without her, and make equal division of the number of sheaves. Is accepted the offer gratefully, and disappeared through the great door into the snowy tract to her lodging. Marian, as was the case every afternoon at this time on account of the bottle, began to feel in a romantic vein. "'I should not have thought it of him. Never,' she said in a dreamy tone. "'And I loved him so.' "'I didn't mind his having you, but this about is is too bad.' Tess, in her start at the words, narrowly missed cutting off a finger with the bill-hook. "'Is it about my husband?' she stammered. "'Well, yes. Is said, don't he tell her, but I'm sure I can't help her. It was what he wanted is to do. He wanted her to go off to Brazil with him.' Tess's face faded as white as the scene without, and its curves straightened. "'And did Is refuse to go?' she asked. "'I don't know. Anyhow, he changed his mind.' "'Pooh! Then he didn't mean it. "'Twas just a man's jest.' "'Yes, he did, for he drove her a good ways toward the station. "'He didn't take her.' They pulled on in silence till Tess, without any premonitory symptoms, burst out crying. "'There,' said Marian, "'now I wish I hadn't told ee.' "'No, it is a very good thing that you have done. "'I have been living on in a third-over, lack-a-day way.' and have not seen what it might lead to. I ought to have sent him a letter oftener. He said I could not go to him, but he didn't say I was not to write as often as I liked. I won't dally like this any longer. I have been very wrong and neglectful in leaving everything to be done by him." The dim light in the barn grew dimmer, and they could see to work no longer. When Tess had reached home that evening, and had entered into the privacy of her little whitewashed chamber, she began impetuously writing a letter to Clare. But falling into doubt, she could not finish it. Afterwards she took the ring from the ribbon on which she wore it next to her heart, and retained it on her finger all night, as if to fortify herself with the sensation that she was really the wife of this elusive lover of hers, who could propose that ears could go with him abroad so shortly after he had left her. Knowing that, how could she write entreaties to him, or show that she cared for him any more? End of chapter 43